Now, as we come today to the ninth chapter of the Gospel of Mark, we have here the transfiguration again. You find it in the first three Gospels, the synoptic Gospels. And then we have something that's given to us here in a great deal of detail, that while the transfiguration was going on on top of the mountain, there was complete failure of the disciples at the foot of the mountain to cast the demon out of the boy. And then Jesus again announces his death, and the disciples dispute who shall be greatest. And then Jesus rebukes their party spirit and warns against hell. So this is another chapter just loaded with dynamite. These are chapters of action, as we've seen. Now let's get into this first part here, the details of the transfiguration on the high mount. Now, Mark is customarily briefer in his account than the other evangelists. However, he gives the longest account of the transfiguration, and that's interesting why he would emphasize it. And, of course, it is our judgment that the transfiguration sets forth the perfect humanity of Christ, and actually it's not given to set forth his deity. As we said, the first three Gospels, the Synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, give it, but not John. John sets forth the deity of Christ, and he does not give the transfiguration. Now, will you notice that in Matthew's account, we had a statement made in the last verse of the 16th chapter, and it said some standing there would not taste out how they saw the kingdom of heaven coming. And, of course, there's been all sorts of interpretations to that. There are those that even say that was the day of Pentecost and that type of thing. Actually, what our Lord had definite reference to, of course, was this transfiguration. And I think that's made very clear because the two men that were there, both Peter and John, they make reference to it. And you will find that Peter, in Second Peter 1, 16 to 18, he says, "...for we have not followed cunningly devised fables when we make known unto you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For he received from God the Father honor and glory when there came such a voice to him from the excellent glory." This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. And this voice which came from heaven we heard when we were with him in the holy mount. Now, you see, he says, we were witnesses of the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. When? At the transfiguration. Now, let me read verse 1, Mark 9. And he said unto them, Verily I say unto you, that there be some of them that stand here, which shall not taste of death, till they have seen the kingdom of God come with power. Now, you have that here. I do not want to go into technicalities, but I believe that the reason that it's given at this particular juncture, before his death and resurrection, was for us to understand that whether he went to the cross or not, that the kingdom is in his hands. I mean, he could have stepped off this earth back to heaven, but he would never have saved you or me. But he would have been still the sovereign ruler of the universe, and he could have recovered it. But he couldn't have saved you, and he couldn't have saved me. So I'm not developing that, but that is here. This is a tremendous thing. Now let me read on. And after six days, Jesus taketh with him Peter and James and John, and leadeth them up into a high mountain apart by themselves, and he was transfigured before them. Now he takes these three men, and the question arises, of course, why did he take these three? Well, first of all, let me say that he didn't take them because they were his little pets or that they were superior to the others. Actually, they were the weakest of the apostles. 
he had to carry them along with him like a baby, or I think they would not have come along at all. This is what I mean. I was noticing a mother go down the street many years ago when I was pastor in Pasadena. She had three children. She was carrying one. She was leading one by the hand, and another one was walking back of her. She'd have to stop every now and then for him to catch up. And I watched them as they made very slow progress down the street. And I thought, my, that little fellow that's following her, he sure is taking a lot of time. But then I thought, the one that she's carrying, he couldn't go along at all if she didn't carry him. And I feel that Peter, James, and John were rather like that. They seem to be an exclusive group. They're not exclusive. They're just babies. And I think that he had to carry them, and that's exactly what he's doing. So he took them in for the transfiguration. Now, Peter says, we will witness of his coming. This is it. This is the glorified Christ as he will come someday to this earth. This also, friends, is a picture of what you and I will be someday. We shall be like him, we are told. And then you'll recall that John says, "...we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father." And the word transfigured here in the Greek is metamorphosed. And the transformation took place in the body of Jesus, and it wasn't a light or effect produced from the outside. The transfiguration was the light that shone from within. And I rather think that Adam and Eve were clothed like that, a light from within. And the transfiguration teaches, therefore, the perfect humanity of Jesus and not his deity. And we have called attention to the fact that John does not mention it at all. Now he goes on to describe this. He was transfigured before them, and his raiment became shining, exceeding white as snow, so that no fuller on earth can white it. Now, the raiment became white, whiter than was even believable, because the light came from within, you see. And the word fuller here, so that no fuller on earth can white them, actually means laundry. In other words, no modern wash day miracle could have produced such brightness all of it came from within. And there appeared unto them Elias and Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. And we have seen this before. Elijah is the representative of the prophets. Moses is the representative of the law. And we are told that both the law and the prophets bore testimony of the death of Jesus. And Luke tells us that they talked about the decease of Jesus. And Moses knew of Christ, because we are told in Hebrews 11:26, "...esteeming the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures in Egypt, for he had respect unto the recompense of the reward." He knew he was coming. All the prophets spoke of his suffering and the glory that should follow. Now, Peter's the spokesman for them here. He always was the spokesman, as you know. And Peter answered and said to Jesus, Master, it's good for us to be here, and let us make three tabernacles, one for thee, one for Moses, and one for Elias. And then Mark adds, For he wist not, or he knew not what to say, for they were sore afraid. And Simon Peter generally spoke when he did not know what to say. Someone has said, If the folk who have nothing to say would refrain from saying it, be a better world. And I think Simon Peter put his foot in his mouth time and time again. He certainly did here. And the important thing is this, and there was a cloud that overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my beloved Son, hear him. All attention now is focused on the Lord Jesus Christ. His word is final. And you don't put Moses or Elijah on a par with him. And then notice verse 8. And suddenly, when they had looked round about, they say, No man any more save Jesus only with themselves. 
By the way, that Jesus only is a marvelous headline, is it not? Jesus only. Not only a headline, but it ought to be a headlight in the lives of many believers today. And he puts here into a brief compass great and weighty words. Jesus only. Now, let me read verse 9. As they came down from the mountain, he charged them that they should tell no man what things they had seen till the Son of Man were risen from the dead. And in other words, the death and resurrection of Christ must go along with this story. The transfiguration saves no man. It presents an ideal, a goal. But that goal can only come through the death of Christ upon the cross and his resurrection from the dead. And you'll notice he always puts his death and resurrection together. Never mentions the cross. He just speaks of his death, if you'll notice. And they kept that saying with themselves, questioning one with another what the rising from the dead should mean. You see, they were entirely ignorant of the resurrection. And the resurrection revealed that, by the way. They rushed to the cemetery. Why? They did not expect to see a living Savior. You don't go to the graveyard to see the living. You go there not to see, but to know that the dead are there. They're in respect to them. And they asked him, saying, Why say the scribes that Elias must first come? And he answered and told them, Elias verily cometh first, and restoreth all things, and how it's written of the Son of Man that he must suffer many things and be said it naught. But I say to you that Elias has indeed come, and they have done unto him whatsoever they listed, as it's written of him. Our Lord, I think, made it clear that when anyone would come along and say today, well, after all, he couldn't have established the kingdom because the prophet said Elijah must come first. Our Lord said that if they had accepted him and he had established the kingdom, this would have been the fulfillment of the prophecy that Elias has indeed come, that is, in light of the fact, but he is to come at the second coming of Christ. Now, from this glorious scene on the mountaintop, we go down to perfect defeat of the disciples at the foot of the mountain. Verse 14, when he came to his disciples, he saw a great multitude about them and the scribes questioning with them. And straightway all the people, when they beheld him, were greatly amazed, and running to him, saluted him. And he asked the scribes, What question ye with them? And one of the multitude answered and said, Master, I have brought unto thee my son, which hath a dumb spirit. And wheresoever he taketh him, he tarreth him, and he foameth and gnasheth with his teeth, and pineth away. And I spake to thy disciples that they should cast him out, and they could not. Now, here is a picture, actually, of the kingdom today. The Lord Jesus has already gone into the presence of the Father. He is there in a glorified body. There is with him his apostles. They've already gone on. Most of the church has gone on. And Moses and Elijah are there today. But that is on the Mount of Transfiguration. That's in heaven. Look at this poor earth today. And here is the problem down here. And this boy represents a mad earth. And I tell you, I believe that if you could get off and look at this earth and behold it as God looks at it, and probably the angels today, you'd come to the conclusion that man on this earth must be mad the way that he's acting, the way he's doing down here, demon-possessed, if you please. And the sad thing is that this man that brought the boy said, My boy, I brought him here, and your disciples couldn't do anything. And the tragic thing in this hour is that the church is hopeless in the presence of a needy world. And right now the church in desperation is reaching out in the organized church, it's protesting and marching and getting involved in all kinds of things today, criticizing the church that it doesn't get involved more. And that's not our business. We ought to be able to help a poor demon-possessed boy today. 
We ought to be able to help men by presenting a Savior to them that will make them rational and will bring them into a right relationship with God. And unfortunately, the thing has to be said of the church, they could not. The disciples could not, and we cannot. And the Lord Jesus said, O faithless generation, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I suffer you? Bring him unto me. And this is tremendous, isn't it? Bring him to me. And we're tempted to do everything except bring lost men to Jesus Christ. And they brought him unto him. And when he saw him straightway, the Spirit tarried him. And he fell on the ground and wallowed foaming. And he asked his father, How long is it ago since this came unto him? And he said of a child. Now, this case, friends, is a bad case. I don't consider it quite as bad as the case of the man among the tombs over in Gadara, because he was a grown man and demon-possessed all this time. This was a boy. And he would have, had he gone on, probably been as bad, if not worse, than the other case, but not at this time. And this man just casts himself upon the Lord Jesus. And when you do that, friends, he'll do something for you. And we read, "...in all times it hath cast him into the fire, and into the waters to destroy him. But if thou canst do anything, have compassion on us and help us." And when you do that, he'll help. Jesus said unto him, "...if thou canst believe." I think that probably that we ought to leave out here this word, believe. It's actually not in the better manuscripts. The thought here is Jesus turned to the Father and asked him to believe, but could the Father have been responsible in any way for the condition of the boy? Notice, Jesus said unto him, All things are possible to him that believe it. In other words, it's not a question if thou canst do anything. The Lord Jesus can do something. If thou canst, he says, well, the question is, what about the man? All things are possible to him that believeth. And straightway the father of the child cried out and said with tears, Lord, I believe, help thou mine unbelief. So the father's desperate plea here of faith. And then our Lord saw that the people came running together, rebuked the foul spirit, saying unto him, Thou dumb and deaf spirit, I charge thee, come out of him and enter no more into him. The spirit cried out, rent him so, came out of him, and he was as one dead, insomuch that many said, He's dead. But Jesus took him by the hand, lifted him up, and he arose. And the question is, was this also a case of our Lord raising the dead? I'm of the opinion it is, but I do not want to labor that point either. And when he was coming to the house, his disciples asked him privately, Why could not we cast him out? And he said unto them, This kind can come forth by nothing but by prayer. Now, fasting here is not in the better manuscripts, and I think the emphasis is upon prayer, but by prayer. And today, friends, the church is weak because prayer is weak in the church. Now, here at verse 30, we find that our Lord here tells of his death and resurrection. Listen to him. They departed thence, passed through Galilee. He would not that any man should know it. For he taught his disciples and said unto them, The Son of Man is delivered into the hands of man, and they shall kill him, and after that he's killed, he shall rise the third day. Now, he always put his death and resurrection together. You'll notice that. And they understood not that saying and were afraid to ask him. They didn't quite understand this matter being raised from the dead. And here he's talking about he's going to die for them, and you would think that these men might at least make some inquiry. And they dared to dispute who would be greater when he had just announced his death. They should have been ashamed of their conduct here. They departed thence, passed through Galilee, and he would not that any man should know it. For he taught his disciples 
and said unto them, The Son of Man is delivered into the hands of man, and they shall kill him. And after that he's killed, he shall rise the third day. But they understood not that saying and were afraid to ask him. And the important thing here is to note that he's announced to them again, and they do not understand. Now they argue about who's going to be greater. And since we dealt with that in Matthew rather thoroughly, it'll come up again in Luke. While we'll pass over that here, and you will notice now that in verse 38, and let me turn there, John is always thought of as a ladylike apostle. Notice his disposition here. John answered him, saying, Master, we saw one casting out demons in thy name, and he followeth not us, and we forbade him, because he followeth not us. But Jesus said, Forbid him not, for there is no man which shall do a miracle in my name that can lightly speak evil of me, for he that is not against us is on our part. For whosoever shall give you a cup of water to drink in my name, because ye belong to Christ, verily I say unto you, he shall not lose his reward. This is really a rebuke of any sectarian spirit that exists. Today we have the goodwill, people of all denominations and no denomination, and we speak out, I think, rather plainly about our viewpoint concerning certain groups. Now, you'll notice in verse 42, he comes back to the child that he had taken in his arms. And this is tender, but it's a fear upon those who offend a little child. Whosoever shall offend one of these little ones that believeth in me, it's better for him that a millstone hanged about his neck and he were cast into the sea. And then he puts by the side of it, if your hand offend you, it'd be better to cut it off than to be cast into hell. And then the interesting thing, did you know that he is the one who talked about hell? There are those today that say, oh, he's the gentle Jesus. He's the only one that talked about hell, friends. Paul never talked about it, but Jesus did, the gentle Jesus. And since he did, it might be well for you to listen to him, because he said, there is a place that's called hell. And I'm confident it is a place, and it is a place like he describes it here. Now, you've noticed that all of these chapters in Mark are just chucked full of action, and this tenth chapter is no exception. In fact, there is no exception to it anywhere. And we have in this chapter Jesus speaking on marriage and divorce. We have first a brief on marriage and divorce, and that's the first 12 verses. And then the blessing of the little children, verses 13 through 16. Then the bewilderment of the rich young ruler, verses 17 through 22. And then the beneficiaries of this world's wealth and their responsibility. That's verses 23 to 31. And then beholding again the death and resurrection of Jesus, 32 and 34, and then the brothers, James and John, and their unbrotherly desire, verses 35 to 45. And then we have blind Bartimaeus, and he receives his sights. We have a lot of BBs in this chapter, but that's the way we've divided it, and you'll find that in our book marching through Mark. I hope that you've sent in for it. And by the way, we have to confine the books to those who support the program, and I'm sure that you understand that. And those who would ask for the books would be those, I'm sure, interested in the program, and I mean really interested in studying the Word of God and wanting to get it out to others. Now, here in this first verse, and I'll begin reading here, and he arose from thence and cometh into the coast of Judea. And you'll notice that there is a movement in Mark here. The fact of the matter is the geography here in Mark is quite interesting. Back in verse 30 of chapter 9, the last chapter, it says, "...they departed thence, passed through Galilee, and he would not that any man should know it." He's making his final departure from there, 
And he certainly didn't want a big send-off, because that's not what our Lord was after at all. Now he comes into the coast of Judea by the farther side of Jordan, which means on the east side. And that was in that area that we call Decapolis, where the ten cities were. And here we have, by the farther side of Jordan, and the people resort unto him again. And as he was wont, he taught them again. He's now making his final ascent to Jerusalem. Now the enemies there, the bloodhounds of Hater on his trail, and the Pharisees came to him and asked him, Is it lawful for a man to put away his wife, tempting him? Now, we need to understand that they have not asked this question because they want an answer. They're asking him the question in order to trap him. And they have their own viewpoint concerning marriage and divorce. And we see here that it's a trick question. Is it lawful for a man to put away his wife? Well, that's a trick question, don't you see? If he said it was not lawful to, then he would contradict Moses. This question was a live one at this time because Herod had put away his wife and married his brother Philip's wife, and John the Baptist had been beheaded because he'd spoken out against it. Now, if Jesus said no to their question, it would not only make him contradict Moses, would bring him into conflict with Herod. And the death of Jesus was not to be determined on this issue. That's very important to see. Now, on the other hand, if he said yes to their question, then they could accuse him, you see, of being lax in his teaching here. Now, will you notice his method? It always was his method, and it was a good one. He answered and said of them, What did Moses command you? He always countered with a question. And they said Moses suffered to write a bill of divorcement and to put her away. And he knew they would have to say that. Now, back in Deuteronomy 24, 1 and 2, there was the Mosaic law. When a man hath taken a wife and married her, and it come to pass that she find no favor in his eyes, because he hath found some uncleanness in her, then let him write her a bill of divorcement, give it in her hand, and send her out of his house. And when she's departed out of his house, she may go and be another man's wife. Now, Moses permitted divorce here, as you can see. And it would seem on the flimsiest sort of an excuse. Now, actually, it was not Moses' intention, nor was it God's intention that for just some little picayunish excuse that a man or a woman could get a divorce. Why, actually, in time they began to interpret this so that if the wife burnt the biscuits, that would be an excuse. Now, our Lord goes back to that which is fundamental, and this is important to see. You're going to see he turns it from a discussion of divorce to marriage, and today that is the area in which I think that we ought to talk more than divorce. I have so many questions. People say, well, what about this? Is this a reason for a divorce? Well, I have very few people that ever come and say, well, what is the reason for marriage? When they get ready to get married, they never talk to the preacher. They come and tell him they want to get married. They're not interested in finding out whether he'd approve it or not. The question is, will he marry them? That's all they're concerned about. Now, the important thing here is to see that he's going to discuss marriage with them. And notice how our Lord handles it. He gives the reason for the permission of divorce. It was because of sin that God granted divorce under any circumstance. For the hardness of your heart, he wrote you this precept. But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. And for this cause shall a man leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife, and they twain shall be one flesh. So then they are no more twain but one flesh. Now, I've read from verse 6 down through verse 8. Now, he goes on and says, What therefore God hath joined together, let not man put asunder. Now, what he's saying here 
is that he takes them back to God's ideal at the creation before sin even entered the world. And divorce was not in his plan and program at that time. He had something better for man. It may likewise, I think, be said that murder was not in his plan either. But murderers have been forgiven, and divorce is a sin. But divorced people can be forgiven, and divorced people can be remarried, friends, under, I think, certain circumstances. That is, from a scriptural viewpoint. I don't know why we forgive a murderer, but we don't always forgive a divorced person. We feel like they've almost committed the unpardonable sin. Now, people who are saved after securing a divorce ought not to bear the stigma anymore than any other sinner who's been saved. And that would mean you and me. We are sinners, and we've been saved. And that just happens to be their sin. Now, what he's saying here in this section is marriage is a stronger tie than that of parent and a child. A child may be disowned, and marriage may be broken by unfaithfulness. Now, this discourse, you see, relates more to marriage than it does to divorce. Jesus is showing here that marriage is something that God makes. God joins a couple together. This was the original intention of the Creator, and any violation of this is sin. But it's not the unpardonable sin, I can assure you. And I'd like to put it like this. You hear so much today about certain percentage. Right here in Southern California, we're told that way over 50%, and I've heard it as high as 80% of those that get married, they're divorced, or the divorces are in that ratio to marriages. Now, the question is not this, that it's wrong to get a divorce. The question is, it's wrong to get married. It looks like to me, we're working on this thing from the wrong angle. It's like locking the stable after the horse is gone. And there are people getting married that ought not to get married. That is the problem. And the sin is in getting married. The sin is not in getting the divorce for a great many of them. So it ought to make you think twice, my friend, before you get married. Because it's something that God wants to arrange for you if you'll let him. And that, of course, is for the Christian. Now, he says, and in the house his disciples ask him again of the same matter. He saith unto them, whosoever shall put away his wife and marry another committeth adultery against her. And if a woman shall put away her husband and be married to another, she committeth adultery. And this is the strongest statement against divorce that's found in the Scripture. The question is, how is it to be interpreted? And all the Scriptures on divorce should be brought together and considered before a proper induction can be made. And the parallel passage in Matthew lists fornication as the one basis for divorce. Now, why did Mark omit it? Mark was writing to the Romans who did not know the Mosaic law, while Matthew was writing for Israel who had and knew the Mosaic law of divorce. And therefore, it has to be considered in that light. And I'm sure you don't want to use Romans 7, 2, because that hasn't anything in the world to do with divorce today. That had to do with that which was under the Mosaic system. And when a woman had an unfaithful husband under the Mosaic system, he was stoned to death. And she didn't have a living husband. Now, today, they don't stone them to death. If they did, we'd have rock piles all over Southern California. In fact, you wouldn't be able to get out on the freeways. Now, will you notice, here we come where he blesses little children. And we have this same thing in the Gospel of Matthew that right along with the question of divorce, he blesses little children. It seems to me that the Gospel writers are trying to tell us something, or the Spirit of God is. And that is that it's the little children that suffer in a divorce. It's amazing the number of young people who get in trouble today come from broken homes. That's no accident by any means. That's the way that it works out. And our Lord here, they brought young children to him that he should touch them, and his disciples rebuked those that brought them. When Jesus saw it, he was much displeased. He said unto them, Suffer the little children to come unto me. Forbid them not, for of such is the kingdom of God. 
Verily I say unto you, Whosoever shall not receive the kingdom of God as a little child, he shall not enter therein. I think probably we ought to pause there just a moment to make this comment. Today we're always trying to get children to become adults. We say, now we'll wait a little while he grows up, and then he'll make a decision for Christ. Our Lord says, I wish some of the adults would become little children. We hear so much today about going on and growing and developing, and actually that's great after you become a child of God. But actually most of us are going the wrong way. We need to leave our cleverness and our sophistication and our great knowledge that we boast of today and return to the simplicity of childhood and just with simple faith trust Christ. Now, will you notice, he took them up in his arms, put his hands upon them, and blessed them. And when our Lord did that, and he never did take anybody else up in his arms like that, friends. He took the little children, because they are the ones he'll receive. And when they die in infancy, they go to him, or die before the age of accountability. We have here the account of the rich young ruler. I've talked about him before in Matthew I'll spend a great deal of time with him when we get to Luke. And when I say a great deal of time, there are certain places where we put emphases in the Gospels. And we'll not put the emphasis here. I will call attention, however, to certain things as we move along. And when he was gone forth, I'm reading now verse 17. And when he was gone forth into the way, there came one running and kneeled to him and asked him, Good master, what shall I do that I may inherit eternal life? Now, there's several things probably we should say. In this day of crass materialism, this incident of the rich young ruler and the teaching of our Lord on riches are certainly very applicable. Matthew tells us that the ruler was young, and this was a normal question for a man under law to ask. And what our Lord is doing here, he says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Now, he's living under the Mosaic law, the Mosaic system. And notice, and Jesus said unto him, Why callest thou me good? There is none good but one, that is God. Now, he's trying to get the young man to think. Why would he call Jesus good? There's only one good, that's God. Then why did he call Jesus good? Well, now, notice. He says, Thou knowest the commandments. Do not commit adultery, do not kill, do not steal, do not bear false witness, defraud not, honor thy father and thy mother. And he answered and said unto him, Master, all these have I observed from my youth. Now, will you notice that the commandments that our Lord flashed on this young man was the second section of the Ten Commandments. You know, the commandments are labeled pietous, And those are the first commandments that have to do with a man's relationship to God. And then the probatus, and they have to do with the man's relationship to man. Now, our Lord did not speak of the man's relationship to God. He spoke of his relationship to man. And he could meet the standard of the second section, you see. He said, all these have I kept. But what was the problem the young man had? He answered, said unto him, Master, all these have I observed from my youth. And in verse 21, Jesus, beholding him, loved him, said unto him, One thing thou lackest. And what was that? Well, it's a relationship to God. How would he come by that? Well, the thing that was hindering him was his riches. And he's called Jesus good. And if he'll follow him, he'll find out that the reason Jesus is good is because he's God. And notice this. He says, Go thy way, sell whatsoever thou hast, give to the poor, and thou shalt have treasure in heaven, and come, take up thy cross, and follow me. Now, if he'd follow the Lord Jesus, where would it lead him? Well, at this time, the Lord Jesus is on the way to die for the sins of this man. And this young man was sad at that, saying, went away grieved, for he had great possessions. This, I think, has a great message here. Paul says that the love of money is the root of all evil. He was merely repeating what our Lord said in this discourse. You know, money will buy anything except the most valuable thing, and that's eternal life. That's a gift. 
And this discourse reveals the impossibility of a rich man to enter into heaven by means of riches. It's impossible for any man to enter heaven by his own means. And you can see here, notice what our Lord says, Jesus looked round about and said unto his disciples, How hardly shall they that have riches enter into the kingdom of God? And the disciples were astonished at his words. But Jesus answered him and saith unto them, Children, how hard it is for them that trust in riches to enter into the kingdom of God. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of God. Well, a camel can't go through the eye of a needle. That's humanly impossible. Or it's camel impossible. But for God, all things are possible. The man can't do it. Only the Lord Jesus can. The idea today is if we have the money, we can do it. Someone has put it like this. Money will buy a bed. It will not buy sleep. It will buy food, but it will not buy an appetite. Money will buy medicine, but it will not buy health. Money will buy a house, but it will not buy a home. Money will buy a diamond, but it will not buy love. Money will buy a church pew, but it will not buy salvation. And therefore, this man had to find out by getting rid of that which stood between him and God. And if he'd followed the Lord Jesus, he'd have found out the reason he's good is because he's God. Now, he gives that warning here against riches. Now we come to verse 32. We find that he's speaking of his death and resurrection. You see, he's moving now toward Jerusalem. They were in the way going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus went before them. And they were amazed, and as they followed, they were afraid. He took again the twelve and began to tell them what things should happen unto him, saying, Behold, we go up to Jerusalem. The Son of Man shall be delivered unto the chief priests and unto the scribes, and they shall condemn him to death, and shall deliver him to the Gentiles." And they shall mock him, and shall scourge him, and shall spit upon him, and shall kill him. And the third day he shall rise again. Here again he's telling them he's going to Jerusalem to die. And then you have this thing here. James and John again come, the sons of Zebedee, saying, Master, we would that thou shouldst do for us whatsoever we shall desire. Now, we've had this before in Matthew. The mother, you remember, came and asked. And our Lord said, Are you able to be baptized with the baptism I'm baptized with? And they said unto him, We can. Jesus said unto them, You shall indeed drink of the cup that I drink of, and with baptism that I'm baptized with all shall ye be baptized. We know James was made a martyr, and John was put on the Isle of Patmos, It's not believed he was a martyr, that is, that he was executed. He might have been. Now, notice he says in verse 40, "...but to sit on my right hand, on my left hand, is not mine to give, but it shall be given to them for whom it's prepared." Now, I went into a great deal of detail in Matthew on that. What he's saying is this. He didn't say that there's not a place on his right hand and left hand, but he said he didn't give it just arbitrarily to anyone he wanted to give it to. But those that will receive it are preparing themselves for the place. Friends, heaven you get for nothing. (laughs) Your place in heaven, you work for it. Salvation is free, but you have to work for a reward. If you are going to be rewarded of him, you won't get it by twiddling your thumbs or wringing your hands or sitting in a corner in a rocking chair. You'll have to work to receive that. Now we come to his final statement here, and this is the key of the gospel, verse 45, "...for even the Son of Man came not to be ministered unto, but to minister and to give his life a ransom for many." That's the great thought here. Now you have here blind Bartimaeus again, and we'll have that in Luke, and I'll be dealing with it there. I do want to say that there is a teacher in a certain seminary that says that He can't believe in the inerrancy of Scripture because he can't reconcile the accounts of the Lord Jesus entering Jericho with blind Bartimaeus, one blind man, and two blind men. Well, may I say to you that all I can say when anyone takes these accounts and tears them apart like that, 
I feel like we got a third blind man, and that's the man that's trying to figure it out. And I don't have time to go into it today. I may take a few moments next time, but we're coming to it again. There just happens to be two blind men, and Mark is emphasizing the one for a very definite purpose. Now, as we come today to the 11th chapter of the Gospel of Mark, we're coming to the last days in the earthly life of our Lord. And we find him now entering Jerusalem publicly. And he curses the fig tree, cleanses the temple, gives the discourse on faith, and silences his enemies who question his authority. Or, to put it in the division that I've given it here in our book on Mark, Jesus presents himself publicly to his nation as the Messiah. First 11 verses. Jesus pronounces a blight on the fig tree, verses 12 through 14. Jesus purifies the temple, verses 15 to 21. And then Jesus' prayer discourse, verses 22 to 26. And then Jesus perturbs the religious rulers, and verse 27 through 33. And actually, he did more than perturb them, but I didn't have another word that began with a P here to fit in with my alliteration. Now we have here in this 11th chapter, actually the three days that he came into Jerusalem. Many of you know from Matthew that we take the position that the so-called triumphal entry was not really that. It was the Lord Jesus now having come to Jerusalem in a public manner at the conclusion of his earthly ministry, why he presents himself. And actually, it amounted to a rejection of his overture. And we find that he came in really for three separate days and not on just one day. And I think each gospel is presenting a different aspect of him coming into Jerusalem. And if many of you refer back to your book, Moving Through Matthew, you'll know that there, as in this one on Mark, we make that division. He came in first on Saturday, second on Sunday, and third on Monday. And now let's come to these last days of his earthly ministry. And I'm reading here at verse 1, chapter 11 of Mark. And when they come nigh to Jerusalem, under Bethphage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives, he sendeth forth two of his disciples." Now, we see the Lord Jesus, I have noted that for the last few chapters, he's been moving geographically toward Jerusalem. And now he's moving geographically very close to his death. And he's also moving chronologically close to it. This is the last week of his earthly life. And Bethany and Bethphage, they are two little towns on the other side of the Mount of Olives from Jerusalem. I intended to walk over there and walk back myself, but I never got around to it the few days that I was in Jerusalem. If I ever go there again, I want to do that. fact of the matter is, I want to spend more time walking through that land. It's one thing to get in a bus or a car and ride along and have these places pointed out, and it's another thing, really, to just get out and get a map and walk along and stop along the way, and anyone can understand English to have a conversation with them. I think, frankly, you'd be able to get right down to something that the average tourist does not see at all today. Now, the Lord Jesus walked into Jerusalem each day. And now, let me read as I go along. And he saith unto them, Go your way into the village over against you, and as soon as ye entered into it, ye shall find a colt tied, whereon never man sat. Loose him, and bring him. And if any man say unto you, Why do ye this? Say ye that the Lord hath need of him, and straightway he will send him hither. Now let's look at that for just a moment. There are two possible, of course, explanations regarding the colt. 
that Jesus was to ride into Jerusalem. Now, the Lord Jesus could have known about it since he was God and therefore omniscient, and this could have been very miraculous from beginning to end. But all of this could have been arranged beforehand, and it would therefore be entirely human. It doesn't seem necessary to read a miracle in here when the natural explanation is in order. And those of you that were with us in Matthew know that we said that we believe that our Lord had arranged for this beforehand, and I think you'll find greater meaning if you look at it like that. The important feature is that Jesus is asserting his authority. Notice that when they went in and someone asked them, what are you doing unloosing the coat? He said, the Lord hath need of him. The Lord's asserting his authority. Also, while some are plotting his death, it's also revealed that others are yielding allegiance to him. And straightway, he'll send him hither, so that there were those obeying him, others were plotting his death. That's been true now for about 1,900 years. You have those two classes. Now, they went into the town. They found it just as the Lord Jesus said they would. They went their way, verse 4 now and found the colt tied by the door without in a place where two ways met, and they loose him. And certain of them that stood there said unto them, What do ye, loosing the colt? And they said unto them, Even as Jesus had commanded, and they let them go. Now, you'll notice that they merely follow his instructions and return with the colt. I think that you have something here that reveals that there were those who were his followers that were obeying him even at the time they were plotting his death. And you can only get that here on the human plane, you see. Now, verse 7, we read, "...and they brought the colt to Jesus, cast their garments on him, and he sat upon him. And many spread their garments in the way, and others cast down branches off the trees, and strawed them in the way. And they that went before, and they that followed, cried, saying, Hosanna! Blessed is he that cometh in the name of the Lord. Blessed be the kingdom of our father David, that cometh in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. Now, this, I'm sure, was not too impressive to those in Jerusalem. I'm sure it was not too impressive to anyone who'd been in Rome at the time that one of the Caesars returned from a campaign, and they had that great triumphal entry, the victorious return of a Caesar, when it is said that the booty that he brought back, that sometimes that the march went on, the parade went on for probably two or three days, and all night long, They'd be coming into the city. Very triumphal, you see. Here, it was just a few Galilean peasants. But the impressive thing, the imposing thing, the important thing, is that the Lord Jesus, for the first time, is offering himself publicly. Now, notice what it says in verse 11. And Jesus entered into Jerusalem and into the temple... And when he had looked round about upon all things, and now the eventide was come, he went out unto Bethany with the twelve. And there are two things here that are important. That this was the first day he entered. It was obviously the Sabbath day. The money changers and oxen were not there. And he came in as priest, and he was the sacrifice. He's come in as the great high priest to offer the sacrifice that is acceptable to God for your sin and my sin. And then note that he did not spend the night in Jerusalem, but returned to Bethany for the evening. And as far as I can tell, he did not spend a night in the city that rejected him. Now notice verse 12. It says, And on the morrow, now this is the second day, when they were come from Bethany, he was hungry, and seeing a fig tree afar off having leaves, He came, if happily he might find anything thereon. And when he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for the time of the figs was not yet. And Jesus answered and said unto it, No man eat fruit of thee hereafter forever. And his disciples heard it. 
Now, that little incident has caused a great big controversy, of course. On the morrow makes it very clear that this was the second day that he entered in triumph. And he also cleansed the temple, as we'll see in a moment, and he cursed the fig tree. And I think that here the nation Israel is represented by the fig tree. Now, I recognize the others that'll take exception to that. I'm not interested in the controversy. What I'm interested in, that there's a great spiritual lesson here, and that they had the outward leaves of a God-given religion, but there was no spiritual fruit there. I wonder if he wouldn't say that of the church today. That's what he's going to say of the church of Laodicea. It was a church that didn't have anything. It was poor and blind, and it needed to have the ointment open the eyes. That is, the Holy Spirit was not there. And I believe that that's the thing that Isaiah was talking about in the 29th chapter, verse 13, when he said, Wherefore the Lord said, For as much as this people draw near me with their mouth and with their lips do honor me, but have removed their heart far from me, and their fear toward me is taught by the precept of man. I would say that's the condition of the church today. Now, the Lord Jesus cursed the fig tree, as Matthew states in just a little bit more detail, by the way, and that the fig tree withered away. Now, let's pass on from that. Verse 15, "...and they come to Jerusalem, and Jesus went into the temple." began to cast out them that sold and bought in the temple and overthrew the tables of the money changers and the seats of them that sold doves and would not suffer that any man should carry any vessel through the temple. Now, here he cleanses the temple. John tells us that he cleansed it at the beginning of his ministry, and here he cleanses it at the end of his ministry. And this took place on the second day. And this second day was not the Sabbath day, it was Sunday. And the money changers were now in the temple. Now, these money changers, they had actually a place on the stock market. They had a seat on the stock market. They were there. And when strangers came from other countries, in order to get the legal coin of the temple, they wouldn't use foreign coin. They'd exchange it for the legal tender of the temple. And, of course, they charged them a certain percentage, and it served a good purpose in a way, but the trouble of it was that our Lord said it had become a den of thieves. This had become a religious racket. And, friends, that's always a danger in any Christian enterprise. And that's the reason folk ought to always check these religious rackets. And radio is pretty hard to check, I know, but... If you're ever in Southern California and you'd like to come by and visit us, you can see that we're not in elaborate quarters. They're comfortable and they're nice. We're trying to operate in a very economical way that we can put everything into the buying of radio time. Well, this gave me an occasion, I guess, to get in a plug, and that's what I did. But this is important, by the way. And our Lord cleansed the temple. I think he'd do a lot of it today. And I don't want him to have to come around with a whip to clean up the Through the Bible radio program. I hope we'll have that part of it. We've got a lot of other things, I'm sure, to straighten out. Now, will you notice, we come to the third day. And in verse 20, "...and in the morning..." as they pass by. Now, that's the third day they saw the fig tree dried up from the roots. Peter, calling to remembrance, saith unto him, Master, behold the fig tree, which thou cursest, is withered away. Now, that causes our Lord now to give here this discourse on prayer, because they marvel that he did this. And this leads to this discourse. And let's come to that now. I probably should conclude this matter of the triumphal entry, so-called, that it actually is the public presentation of himself as the Messiah. And obviously, he is rejected. And we find here that this is merely that which is not a triumph. I don't like that term. 
I don't think that it's scriptural to call it that. You wait till you see him someday when he comes, and the dead in Christ rise first, and those that alive fall, and you see that tremendous order of 1,900 years of millions of saints going out. My friend, that'll be a triumphal entry. That'll really be one. And I think it's going to take place over a long period of time. Somebody says it'll be in a moment and a twinkling of an eye. Yes, but my friend, that parade's got a long ways to go. Not to the moon, but to the new Jerusalem. And he's going to lead them into the new place for this new group, the new creation. My, what a glorious thing that'll be. That'll be triumphant. Now, let's notice this. Verse 22, Jesus answering, saith unto them, Have faith in God. That's very interesting. You see, this discourse on the prayer of faith grew out of Peter's calling attention to the blighted fig tree. The first step in prayer is faith in God. The writer to the Hebrews, you remember, put it like that. But without faith, it's impossible to please him. For he that cometh to God must believe that he is, that he's a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. Now, if you don't believe in God, friends, certainly the skeptic of the past who said that prayer is a madman talking to himself is very accurate. He that cometh to God must believe that he is. Have faith in God. That's the first step. For verily I say unto you that whosoever shall say unto this mountain, Be thou removed, and be thou cast into the sea, and shall not doubt in his heart, but shall believe that those things which he saith shall come to pass, he shall have whatsoever he saith. Now, this is a verse that's been so misunderstood today. You find that the Christian doesn't need to throw mountains around literally, but he needs power today for living and meeting the daily mountains of cares and problems. And Paul could pray for the Ephesians that he would grant you, according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with might by his Spirit in the inner man. Now, don't pray for me that I'll be able to move the mountains that are back of our headquarters up here in Pasadena, because frankly... I see no point in moving the mountains. And if I'd move them, where in the world would I move them? And I don't want to put them out in the ocean. They look pretty up where they are. So that's not it. But I want to tell you very candidly, I would like to be strengthened with might by the Holy Spirit in the inner man. And that, my friend, would be greater than moving a mountain. That's the thing that's important, and that's the thing actually he's talking about, and he's giving them this visible thing for them to see. And he says, Therefore I say unto you, what things soever ye desire, when ye pray, believe that ye receive them, and ye shall have them. That is, have faith in God. Not that you get the ability to move mountains or your own selfish desires, but that his will might be done in your life. Have faith in God. And when you stand praying, forgive, if you have ought against any, that your Father also, which is in heaven, may forgive you your trespasses. And if you do not forgive, neither will your Father, which is in heaven, forgive your trespasses. And believe me, if we stood on that basis today, some of us would really be in difficulty. But remember this, an unforgiving spirit will short-circuit the power of prayer. And that's important. Now, God forgives us for Christ's sake. That's the way we are saved. But if you and I are going to have power in our lives, there must be forgiveness. That's very important. Now, we find the chief priests coming out to try to trap him here. And notice verse 27. And they come again to Jerusalem, and as he was walking in the temple, there come to him the chief priests and the scribes and elders, they're still on his trail. You see these bloodhounds of hate. And they say unto him, By what authority doest thou these things? Who gave thee this authority to do these things? You see, they were the ones in authority. They were the religious rulers, and they hadn't given him any authority. And they won't know where he got it. And Jesus answered and said unto them, I'll also ask of you one question. You notice how he always answers like that? And answer me, and I'll tell you by what authority I do these things. The baptism of John, was it from heaven or of man? Answer me. 
That was a good question, by the way. This was a devastating question to the religious rulers. You see, if they said that John's baptism was from heaven, then the obvious follow-up would be, well, why didn't you accept him? And if they repudiated John, then the people would be antagonized, for they accepted John. And then he asked them this question, their baptism of John, was it from heaven or of man? Answer me. And they reasoned with themselves, saying, If we shall say from heaven, he'll say, Why then did ye not believe him? But if we shall say of man, they feared the people, for all men counted John that he was a prophet. And they answered and said unto Jesus, We cannot tell. They had to confess their ignorance, and they thought they knew everything, by the way. And Jesus answering saith unto them, Neither do I tell you by what authority I do these things. They had to wiggle out of answering the question, you see, by blandly saying they were ignorant. And someone might say, well, the Lord Jesus didn't answer their question, and he didn't use sufficient ground. Oh, my friend, they were not seeking an answer. They were trying to trap him, don't you remember? And he is the one that didn't answer them because he's not falling into their trap. This is, to me, one of the great proofs of his deity is the way he handled his enemies.